The corporate charter that Dunster started there, that he established, still governs Harvard to this day. Samuel Eliot Morrison, the best-known historian of Harvard, says that the charter that he established actually serves basically as the constitution for the modern university. He also wrote that if it wasn't for Dunster, Harvard may not have ever survived to begin with. So, you might be wondering, okay, how does this connect to, we're talking about baptism today, how does this all connect? Well, here's the connection. Dunster grew up Anglican and affirmed infant baptism. After a careful study of Scripture, Dunster rejected infant baptism and embraced believer's baptism, which is for someone who has trusted Christ, made a personal profession of faith, as we saw here this morning with Isabella. This was serious business back in those days, because there was actually a local law against speaking against infant baptism. So... You can only imagine if it was the college president doing so. Well, things came to a head when Dunster refused to baptize his own son and when he publicly intervened in the baptism of another child. So at this point, he was forced to either recant or to resign. He chose to resign. And he left Harvard and moved to another part of Massachusetts where he became pastor of a church. And he died five years later. Anybody know that story beforehand? Pretty fascinating, isn't it? Pretty fascinating. When I hear this story, a couple things leap out to me. One is that I'm thankful that I wasn't a colonist in those days. (laughs) But seriously, I think it, it is unwise looking at and trying to learn from history, it is unwise, on one hand, to make baptism an essential doctrine, like, say, the deity of Christ or the inspiration of Scripture. Um, a person can differ on this issue and still be a Christian, right? We, we believe that. And these colonists had many virtues, but I think they were a little bit overzealous in this regard. However, in Ephesians 4, Paul says that we are united by certain things. One of them being baptism. He writes in Ephesians 4, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So baptism should actually be a source of unity in the church. In some ways, it is. Uh, Christians almost universally recognize that baptism is in some way an entrance entrance into the Christian community, the church. But there's significant differences like who should be baptized, how they're baptized, and so on. Now, in my view, I think it's important for Christians to try to do a balancing act here. On one hand, we need to clearly uphold the essentials of the faith. Okay, and, and wouldn't put baptism in that category, all right? But at the same time, we need to humbly search the scriptures to come to come to a greater unity about baptism here as a church and in the church at large. Amen. There cannot be unity one baptism if we don't humbly open up the scriptures and see what they say to us, right? 
And that is my aim for us as a church, that Scripture, not tradition or our background, would profoundly mold and shape us in regard to the issue of baptism. And really, in regard to every issue, right? That our sole source of authority would be the Scriptures. So last week, we began a series on the two Christian ordinances or sacraments that Christ gave to the church, baptism and Lord's Supper. And these ordinances, as we talked about last week, are very important because Christ commanded the church that we would keep them. And as we'll see even today, they're just very rich in meaning and significance. Okay? So just to briefly, and we're going to devote two weeks to each ordinance. So last week was... Part one of baptism, we'll do part two today, and then we'll start next week with the Lord's Supper for two weeks. Now, I want to recap from last week and do a little bit lengthier of a recap, just so in case you weren't here, we're all on the same page when we discuss baptism here this morning. Last week, we discussed two questions, just two questions. And the first question, what is the origin of baptism? I think it's always helpful to know the story of something, how it began. And we saw that last week there really isn't an Old Testament foundation. It begins in the New Testament when John the Baptist explodes on the scene. And in John's ministry, he was preparing people for the Messiah and the kingdom of God. And so what did he do? He preached repentance. The people needed to repent. The nation was in dire need of repentance. And repentance is a change in your mind toward God that leads to a change in godly behavior. That's what repentance is. And so John preached this message, and people responded by baptism. That was how they demonstrated that they were indeed repentant. So John had a tremendous impact, but as John would have been the first to say, his message and ministry was only preparatory. He was looking forward to someone to come after him. And who was that? That's right, Jesus, the Messiah. And that leads to the next phase of the origin of baptism. Jesus and his relationship to John's baptism. All four Gospels record that Jesus was baptized by John. That's pretty significant when all four Gospels mention that. Okay, And so it's interesting that Jesus participated in baptism even though he was sinless, right? And the question is, well, why did he do that? Well, he did it even though he was sinless, he was publicly affirming his taking our place to be our substitute and to stand in our stead. Okay, And so we see from Jesus' actions there that though John's baptism was foundational, Jesus was going to come along and he was going to add new meaning and significance to baptism by tying it into his own redemptive mission and taking our place for salvation. So then that led to the second question. Who should be baptized? We saw that baptism occurs after conversion. After conversion. When a person repents of their sins and they place their faith in Jesus Christ. Baptism itself has no salvific power. It has no salvific power. It is an outward symbolic display of a person's inward faith in Jesus Christ. So baptism is not necessary for conversion, but as we saw, it is necessary for discipleship, which means becoming like Jesus, our spiritual growth. Okay, So 
Those were the two questions we looked at last week. What is the origin of baptism? Who should be baptized? This week we've got two more questions on the docket here. All right? And the first is, how should we be baptized? How should we be baptized? Just a lighthearted story here about how you're not to do it, first of all. I'm not going to show a video of some kid cannonballing into the baptistry or whatever. You know, you might have seen those kind of things. Actually, I'm going to go a little bit further back. Patrick of Ireland, we've heard of him, right? St. Patrick. He baptized the king there, King Angus, in the middle of the 5th century. Sometime during the baptism ceremony, Patrick leaned on his staff, and the staff had a point on it, and it inadvertently stabbed the king's foot. But the king didn't say anything. Okay? So after the baptism was over, Patrick looked down and saw blood everywhere, realized what he had done, and begged for the king's forgiveness. And he wondered, why didn't you say anything after I stabbed you in the foot? And the king said, I thought it was part of the ritual. (laughs) So thankfully, and I'm sure Isabella's thankful, that is not how someone should be baptized. So what does Scripture say on how we are to baptize? Well, there are two prominent lines of thinking in the Christian world about how we should baptize someone. One is to sprinkle, the other is to immerse, to immerse, all right? What view has the more biblical support? Well, I want to give you two what I think are compelling reasons for immersion, for immersion. The first is the meaning of the word itself, the meaning of the word itself. The Greek verb for baptize is baptizo. It meant to plunge, to immerse, to dip. The idea was putting an object or a person underneath the water. Okay? And the word was used this way, not just in the New Testament, but in common Greek language and literature. Okay? So in other words, if you were walking around in the streets and, and you had asked someone, what does the Greek word baptize mean? They would have said it meant immersion, to put something under the water. It wasn't just some sort of Christian understanding it was just how the word was used. Okay? So it was the common, widely understood meaning of the word. And at this point, there's really no argument. Even Christian traditions that would argue for sprinkling recognize that that simply is what the Greek word meant. Okay? So I think it's important we don't skip past that point lightly. I mean, that's just basically what the word meant and how it would have been understood. The second was the practice of the New Testament, what we see there. The way baptism was practiced strongly indicates immersion. Let's go back to John the Baptist. It says in Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So people were being baptized in the Jordan River. I don't want to make too much of that, but there are other Greek words, prepositions, that John could have, or Mark could have used there, like by the river, or near the river, or whatever, but he chose the word in the river. Moreover, it says in John 3.23, that says John was also baptizing at 
Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. So John chose to baptize in a river, in a specific part of a river, river, where there was a lot of water. I think if John was just simply sprinkling or pouring, it wouldn't make sense for him to make a beeline to the part of the river that where water was very plentiful. I think it makes more sense for him to go to an area where he was immersing people in the Jordan River. And it's pretty significant also that when we go back to Jesus' baptism, it says in Mark 1.10, Jesus came up out of the water. So Jesus was immersed himself. And we just saw how he was standing in our place. He was sort of being our representative. And so his baptism in that regard, I think, is significant. So the pattern of John was immersion, and it was the pattern that Jesus submitted to when he was baptized by John. So when we come to the early church, it's fascinating that the mode of baptism is hardly discussed. And I think it's that reason, the reason for that is because it was simply assumed that this was the proper mode, because it was the pattern already being put into place. There are nine different baptisms recorded in the book of Acts, which is the early history of the church, and only one of them mentions the mode, how someone was baptized. But that incident is significant. So I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 8. And let's read this together as a church here. And let's read the one case where it is mentioned how someone was baptized in the early church. While you're turning there, let me just give you a, a quick rundown of what was going on. Philip encountered a man coming back from Jerusalem who was an Ethiopian eunuch. He was a government official, right? He was probably coming back from an official government visit. It says in the passage that he wanted to know the Old Testament better, and he was reading a passage um, from Isaiah 53, and he wanted to know what does this mean. And so Philip comes along and explains to him that Isaiah 53 was really about Jesus and how Jesus fulfilled this. The Ethiopian eunuch understands, then he believes that Jesus is the Messiah. So praise God, this Ethiopian eunuch just becomes a believer. All right. So then we pick up in verse 36 and following and see what happens in relation to baptism. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. So while they're traveling along, this Ethiopian eunuch asked to be baptized. And like with Jesus, notice that he too went down into the water and came up out of the water. Clearly, he was immersed. And I don't think it'll really do to say, well, there's some sort of other explanation. This guy was a government official. I'm pretty sure that he probably had a canteen laying around his chariot somewhere that if he could have used just to be sprinkled. But instead, he wanted to go down into the river to be immersed. So again, the only place in the book of Acts where we have an incident where someone is baptized, we see that they are immersed. So, 
when we look at the pattern from John the Baptist and Jesus and Philip, the pattern is immersion. Believers are brought to water. Water isn't brought to them. And there's really no other examples otherwise. So the evidence from the New Testament is immersion. And then when you start tracking out, when you close the New Testament and say, well, what does church history teach us? It was the clear pattern of the church for centuries that immersion was the standard practice. For example, and this is recognized, again, from other traditions that don't even practice immersion, they recognize this was the standard for centuries. Jeffrey Bromley is a prominent Anglican scholar. He writes, Immersion was fairly certainly the original practice and continued in general use up to the Middle Ages. So I think when you look at the Bible, when you look at church history, it supports immersion. Okay? Everybody clear on that? I think it's a very, very significant thing. And it's why we try to practice things the way we do here as a church. And I think going also, going to our, four, our next question here, the significance of baptism Immersion plays a key part in helping us to see the significance of baptism. All right? So what is the significance of baptism? Well, it symbolizes our salvation experience. It's a powerful picture, just in the action itself of what takes place at salvation. I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. Because we're going to see three specific ways that baptism symbolizes our experience. And the first is this. Salvation symbolizes our union with the death of Christ. Salvation symbolizes our union with the death of Christ. Romans 3, 6, excuse me, 6, 3-4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Colossians 2.12 also says, Having been buried with Him in baptism, which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. So friends, let's, let's understand this. Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of sin and to remove its power. And upon conversion, the believer is joined to Christ along with all other believers. Theologians refer to this, Adam preached about it some months ago, as our union with Christ. That believers are truly and mystically united with Christ. It's a very real thing. okay? And it's essential to understanding our salvation. So since we are united to Christ, we too have died to sin. We are no longer under the power of sin. Yes, sin still remains in the life of the believer, but the power has been broken. So therefore, Paul urges us that we can't keep on sinning the way we used to sin. We've been changed. We've, the, the power of sin has been broken. And so here is where baptism comes in. Keep tracking with me here. If you grant immersion specifically, when a person is, person is submerged under the water... It's a powerful depiction of our union with the death of Christ, who was our substitute, right? And it also depicts of our own death to sin. It's being laid to rest. Our old sinful, sinful nature has died. It's, it still flares up, but the power of it has died. 
It's almost like a believer is saying, I have died to the power of sin. This has taken place when I was united with Christ at conversion. And now my baptism specifically depicts that I have died to sin. I have been put under the waters. Isn't that powerful? Second, baptism symbolizes our union with the resurrection of Christ. Symbolizes our union with the resurrection of Christ. And again, granting immersion, there's this powerful imagery. When a person comes up out of the water, right? When they come up out of that water, it depicts several things. For one thing, it depicts, again, our union with Christ and how Christ was raised from the dead. That's what our hope is. He he rose from the dead physically. It also depicts one day our future resurrection. And it also depicts our spiritual new birth. We're raised with Christ to spiritual life. We now have a desire to want to follow Christ, whereas before we didn't want to. We've been raised with Him to new life. It doesn't say that you're going to be perfect but it depicts a decisive transformation has occurred. So when a person comes up out of that water, so much is being displayed there. It's a picture of our union with Christ who rose from the dead. It's a picture of our future resurrection. It's a picture of our new life in Christ that it has been put to death and now we are raised to new life in Christ. And then thirdly, one other thing here, Baptism symbolizes our spiritual cleansing. We need cleansing. You know, Isaiah 64 says that even our most righteous deeds are filthy rags to God. Because there's always sinful motives and things that we entangle with our righteous deeds. So how much more (laughs) our filthy deeds and the things that we think and say and do, how much more does it need to be washed to be able to stand in the presence of God, to have a relationship with Him. And baptism is a symbol of our cleansing before God. In Acts 22.16, the disciple Ananias tells Paul after his conversion, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on His name. So baptism is a powerful display of our cleansing that was accomplished by Christ's sacrifice. Pretty powerful, isn't it? You see the significance of baptism? I mean, it's a sermon in of itself, isn't it? It displays and declares the gospel. Jesus is so brilliant to call us to do this. Be reminded, not just in words, but in vivid display about the power of the gospel through baptism. Let me close out here with just a few practical questions gone through kind of the, the, the biblical discussions here, but I know pe- sometimes people have just some practical questions that might come up about baptism. What's the process of baptism? In other words, you know, if you're sitting here today, you've never been baptized, well, what, what are the steps that would lead to getting into the baptistry there? Well, very simply, we just ask you to share with a, a leader in the church um, that you have repented of your sins and believed in Jesus Christ. That's the scriptural prerequisite. Again, to repent means that there's been a decisive breaking in your life of wanting to turn away from sin and start obeying Christ. Doesn't mean you're perfect, right? 
but it does mean I want to start following Christ. And when I stumble and fall, I'm going to confess that and keep moving forward and following my Savior wherever the cross takes me. I've repented of my sin. And also, I've placed my faith and trust in Christ. I'm not depending on my own good works. I'm placing my faith in Christ who died for me as God in human flesh on that cross to atone for my sins and was raised from the dead to show His claims were true. Apart from this, friend, there is no saving faith. That is saving faith, to repent of our sins and to place our faith in Christ. And so we just want to know that that has taken place in your life. That you've met this Savior and His life has transformed your life. Sometimes people ask me, well, do I have to go through a class? Well, I think there's some great things about a class, but not necessarily. We just want to know that your heart has been changed and you have a testimony. And once that testimony has been in place, we encourage you to show and declare your faith in Christ through your testimony, through your baptism. And as a footnote, speaking a couple words here to the parents, I think the same principles apply to children. Scripture doesn't endorse baptizing infants, but it does endorse baptizing children who are old enough to repent and believe in Christ. There is no age requirement that we see in Scripture. Some churches have that, and there is some wisdom in that, but it's not a biblical precedent that has to be followed. Obviously, we need to have patience with our children, right? Because they can often come along inside and, and want to you know, follow what our parent, their parents say and, and please their parents, and they may not truly understand. So it's important to patiently work through our children's understanding to make sure that they understand the gospel and that there is a change that we see in their lives. Maybe it's just what you might see in the life of a young child, maybe being sorry for their sins or the way they interact with their siblings or their, their parents or maybe wanting to start reading the Scripture. So we should look for true indicators of repentance. But let's not add more than the Scripture adds, right? So that's the process of baptism. Here's another question that sometimes comes up. What if the person cannot be immersed? Yeah, there are rare occasions when a person cannot be immersed. For example, a person on their deathbed may simply be unable to be immersed. And I think in such occasions, it's fine to sprinkle or to to pour on such an individual. But I do think we should make every effort to be immersed if possible. On our church Facebook page, I posted this morning a very short video of a soldier being baptized in the bucket of a bulldozer. It's very cool. I don't know where it was taken, but it very much looked like it was overseas somewhere where they probably didn't have a nice baptistry at 85 degrees, perfect temperature and everything. But this soldier was undeterred. He wanted to be baptized. So he jumped in the bucket, and the chaplain baptized him. Lastly, who can baptize? Who can baptize? Who can administer that? Well, typically, a church leader will baptize. But we do need to remember that the New Testament does not specify. So we don't need to be dogmatic about this. I think it's fitting that church leaders should be the primary ones to baptize, since it kind of adds a sense of order and stability. But it doesn't specify, so others are allowed to baptize. 
And so, for example, if the case came up where a parent really wanted to baptize their child, I see no problem at all with that, okay? So if that ever comes up one day, I'm just letting you guys know here, there is no scriptural commands that it has to be the leaders of the church, okay? It's usually the case, but it's not always the case. In closing, let me just give two motivations for our church to grow in the ordinance of baptism. Whether you yourself need to be baptized, or maybe it's someone that you know. First, baptism is a matter of obedience. Christ gave clear instructions that believers should be baptized. And it was the clear practice of the early church. Friends, it's not optional. It's not incidental. Obedience is never optional in the Christian life. Please don't let Satan deceive you into thinking it is fine to disobey. People come up with a lot of different reasons. No doubt, sincere and heartfelt. I don't minimize them. It's embarrassing. I don't know what my family will think of what I do because maybe they don't come from that same understanding and whatever it might be. But I truly believe that there is no reason to disobey the Lord's command, no matter how significant. In the book Stories for the Soul, Raymond, the author is named Raymond McHenry, he relates a story by Pastor Jim Dennison when he was in college and he served as a summer missionary in East Malaysia. And he writes, quote, While there, he attended a small church. At one of the church's worship services, a teenage girl came forward to announce her decision to follow Christ and be baptized. During the service, Dennison noticed some worn-out luggage leaning against the wall of the church building. He asked the pastor about it. The pastor pointed to the girl who had just been baptized and told Dennison. Her father said that if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never come home again. So she brought her luggage. So friend, let me ask you, what is stopping you from following the Lord's command to be baptized? second thing I just want to say is, sec- is that baptism brings blessing. That's the flip side of the coin. Friends, there's a very simple principle in Scripture, and that is obedience brings blessing. Obedience brings blessing. And since baptism is the first step of discipleship, I believe we're never going to experience the fullness of God's blessing unless we obey. I look in my own life. I became a Christian when I was 21, and six months or so after I'd become a Christian, I was growing. I was kind of taking little tiny steps. But a pastor of the church I was attending challenged me to be baptized, and I did that. And it was amazing to me, still now, 20 years later, looking back, how when I did that, it was like the Lord just started opening these doors in my life for spiritual growth. Next thing you know, I'm plugged into a great Sunday school class I didn't grow up a Christian. I, I now made Christian friends. I, I didn't know any Christian friends. All of a sudden I had Christian friends and they helped me to grow. I, I, I read the 
whole New Testament that summer. Where did that desire come from? I have no doubt that it was probably the Lord just honoring my obedience. And I started growing in the Scriptures. I started serving and using the gifts that the, that the Lord had given me to start being a blessing to others. And I started growing. But I look back, and it was April 23, 1995, when I got baptized. And I just wonder, Lord, did you kind of pop open some doors in my life to start growing me spiritually? for the simple fact that I obeyed. It has nothing to do with salvation, but about growth in the Christian life. And I've seen a similar dynamic as a pastor. When people are baptized, boom, things just start changing in their lives, and they start going, I'm, not, I'm making no promises here, that it, oh, no more troubles in life, no guarantees of that. But you start growing. How about you? I would truly love to see more people following the Lord's command to be baptized for your own benefit, for the encouragement of our church. Church, aren't you encouraged every time there's a baptism here? It's such a blessing. And for the glory of God, which should be our supreme motive in all things. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We do thank you for your word. We thank you for the things that unite us as a church here. We thank you for the one baptism. And Lord, we do want to balance that tension, Lord, of recognizing that we know baptism doesn't save anybody. We know that it's about the gospel and the deity of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross and believing that in faith. So we don't want to confuse anything. But Lord, we also want to take seriously what you have taken seriously and that you've told us to make disciples and discipleship entails baptism. Lord, I pray for someone here today perhaps who's never truly understood the gospel, that as they have seen this baptism today, as we've talked about who should be baptized, that they would realize, Lord, that they need to truly trust you, to repent of their sins and to believe in Jesus as their own personal Savior. Not based on what their parents think or their spouse or their friends, but in their own life. And Lord, if there's folks here today who've never followed you in baptism, Lord, in obedience to your command, Lord, may they walk in that obedience and experience the blessing of publicly declaring their faith in our great Savior who publicly was shamed on the cross so that we might be forgiven. May they publicly declare their faith in that Savior who was then publicly risen from the grave. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.